I wanted to, before I actually get in, we're going to, um, we're going to look at another psalm because we're doing summer in the psalms. So this morning we will do another psalm and we will be doing Psalm 19, one of C.S. Lewis, Lewis's favorite psalms. And uh, so I'm sure that uh, that will bring some help and some insight. But before we get into that, I wanted to read a letter to you that's from Scott Fairlamb. Now, Scott is, if you, uh, well, I don't know if you know the Fairlambs or not. A- Andrea is his wife. They've been coming. She's been coming to church now, I guess, about a uh, year and a half, something like that. And um, Scott got himself um, all wrapped up in the January 6th thing and was down in Washington on January the 6th and got in the middle of all of the craziness um, and was pretty participatory in all of that and got himself arrested. He has been in jail since January of, uh, was it 2021? Yeah, since January of 2021, he's been in jail. He is in jail still. Hopefully, um, it looks like he may be able to get out of jail before the Christmas holidays, so we're hoping that by um, December um, he will have served his time and he'll be able to get off. Um, but the good news is, is that in the middle of all of this, he has gotten radically saved. And, and I'm sure that as he looks back over his life, um, despite this terrible situation that he's been in, because this has been real, a real rough situation for any of the... Uh, um, inmates and all those who are incarcerated, this has been a real rough situation. Um, I remember when the first time they came here, he was not interested in God at all. He came to make his wife happy, and he was here, but he was, you know, not really in any way um, showing any, like, you know, positive or interest or anything. And, uh, but the Lord has reeled him in, and uh, I, I get a chance, I probably talk to him about once a week, because I'm one of the, you know, you get, as a pastor, you can be one of those numbers that people can call, and all of that, so we talk, and, um, and what's going on in his life. So I wanted to read uh, the letter that he wrote, because it's really written to us at Freedom Church. Brothers and sisters of Freedom Church, exactly one year ago, I would have started this letter off with the words of a lost man. I don't know where to begin. Now found, let me begin. Thank you to my Lord and Savior, my refuge, my fortress, in whom I place my trust, and complete, in, in, to, in whom I place my total and complete trust. The last 17 months of incarceration have been filled with some of the highest highs and lowest of lows. These, those first months went by in slow motion, like I could <clears throat> almost count the second hand ticking away. Single, a single cell, solitary confinement, weeks without outside contact, locked away 23 hours a day, day after day, <clears throat> jumping at, my, at any opportunity to shower, not knowing if or when the next chance <clears throat> might present itself. Because um, then the, <clears throat> the events to other political prisoners doing um, temperature checks to see where they were at um, mentally and physically I uh, can't quite read that. <clears throat> Delivering words of hope, strength, and humor to ensure we could say another day down and lights out. Then, on the night <clears throat> before June 1st at 11.45 p.m., my life would change, change forever. My cell, number 30, had its door popped, and I was immediately confronted by four correctional officers. 
this group often referred to as the Goon Squad. Um, one guard in particular, Holmes, turned his body camera off and decided he was going to teach me a lesson. Once inside my cell, he began to <clears throat> scream threats just inches from my face. He repeatedly told me he would beat me practically foaming from his mouth. While all, this, while all of this was taking place, I felt an overwhelming calmness take over my body. The Holy Spirit consumed me. A hedge of protection covered me. The Lord was with me. What was surely supposed to be another beating handed out by the DC um, goon squad would instead be remembered as my salvation. My prayers, my cries for help were being answered. <clears throat> and boy, was God's timing perfect. Amen. The next 24 hours, I could hardly sleep as I rejoiced and continued, to give th and, and continued to give thanks. The highest of highs that I felt on June 1st of 2021 continues with the same intensity, if not more, as I mature in my walk with Christ. Today, the abundance of blessings I have received and continue to receive since have brought, um, <clears throat> brought uh, something, gratitude, purpose, and clarity into my life. I'm truly grateful for this whole experience. This was and still is all part of God's plan for me. Amen. My wife, Andrea, and I thank you for your prayers, letters, and heartfelt words, and they bring us much hope and comfort. God bless you all. See you soon, your brother in Christ, Scott. And then he ends with, uh, because if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Amen. <clears throat> So praise God for that, <clears throat> and uh, that'll be one heck of testimony when we uh, get him back in, in church here, so we're looking forward to that. But you can pray for him, and you can also, there's a, an address that you can write him and encourage him if, uh, if you feel so inclined to do. Uh, that, I'm sure, would be a blessing both to him and Andrea. So <clears throat> that's a good thing that God is doing. Amen? All right. <clears throat> so... This morning, we will continue in our series that I am calling Summer in the Psalms, okay? So we're taking some time this summer to be in the Psalms, <clears throat> and the title of uh, the message this morning is Psalm 19, or the, the, the source of our <clears throat> message this morning is Psalm 19, and the message is about divine revelation, how God speaks to man and what it is intended to accomplish. Divine revelation, it, it's important um, that we understand that the only way any of us can ever come to know God is by him revealing himself and not us like trying to climb up into the, you know, into the ether there to somehow get to experience him or something. We would not know God if he had not chosen to reveal himself. And there are actually four stages of revelation the first one, this one, uh, this psalm here, uh, as if you probably know if you've been a Bible reader for a while, this revelation that uh, is presented to us here first is called natural revelation. It's the revelation of God in nature. It is how God has made himself known through the, um, through the natural world. And then he'll go on to, uh, to a, a secondary, even more significant aspect of revelation, and that will be special revelation. He will 
um, uh, if this is God having given his word through prophets, through uh, leaders, through people throughout the Old Testament, God imparted or made his word known, God inspired, scripture says, uh, every, the word of God is uh, inspired, um, every word of God is inspired, I, I, I'm losing it right there on that, that verse, but uh, it'll come back. But through inspiration, God has made himself or revealed himself um, to the Old Testament prophets, to the Old Testament leaders, mostly through Moses, who wrote the first five books. So through this, this, uh, this psalm here is going to speak to us about God's revelation. Of course, the greatest revelation, and David didn't know much about this one because it hadn't happened yet. This was still a thousand years before that revelation was to come. The greatest revelation of God is, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the way that God has revealed him, himself in the, the, the most complete way. On, uh, we, we've often, I've often uh, shared the passage of Scripture um, in John 14 where, where there's a conversation going on. This is the, the night of his betrayal, and this is all the kind of the last-minute talk that Jesus is giving to his disciples. And uh, in the midst of it all, one of his disciples, Philip, said, Lord, if you would just show us the Father... That'd be enough for us. And, uh, right, that's all. Just show us the Father. But, I mean, it's a reasonable question. And um, the Lord's answer is very significant. He says, Philip, have I been with you all this time, and still you have not known me? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Think of that. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? <clears throat> The works that I do, the words that I speak, they're not of me. They're of the Father. It is the Father who is doing his own work through me. And so um, Jesus himself is the manifestation. That uh, the, the passage that really nails it down is found in Hebrews chapter 1 where it says, God, who in various times and in various ways has revealed himself in times past through the prophets, has in these last days revealed himself by his Son whom he has appointed heir of all things, who being the express brightness of his image and the exact representation of his, of his person, when he had by himself purged us from our sins, sat down at the right hand of God. And so, this, so what God reveals through nature, and that's what we'll look at for a while today, then God reveals even more through scripture and through special revelation. Then if uh, then God becomes one of us in order to be able to make himself known, which really ought to say something to us about what God is like. In other words, he's not wanting to be up in the ivy tower away from people. No one can know me because I'm far too holy. I'm far too this and that. You know what I mean? I'm God. You're nothing but sinful people. No, God is in every possible way has done every possible thing to reveal himself and make himself known. The rest is on us, right? If it's out there, then the rest is on us to seek for God, to seek to get to know him. And that should be the natural response, but it uh, usually isn't as we will see as we get into this message here this morning. So divine revelation, how God speaks to man and what that is intended to accomplish. So the theme of this psalm is God's revelation to man. Um, as I was pondering this whole thing, I thought about the whole SETI project, S-E-T-I. You've probably heard of that somewhere along the line. S-E-T-I is a government project. It stands for Search for Extraterrestrial, extra, um, yeah, Searching for Extraterrestrial Intelligence, S-E-T-I. And 
they, uh, the project started sometime probably in the early 60s and it has developed, and it, and the, um, and it has been an ongoing um, government project for all these years. Millions and billions of dollars have been spent. And the whole purpose of the SETI project is that there, there is a, um, there, there is a, a, a dish down in West Virginia. Uh, and this dish is, um, I'm told, like 68 meters wide. Um, multiply that by three meters, roughly a yard. So that'd be about 180 some, uh, 200, figure, it's 200 um, feet wide. Now this room here is probably about, from this wall to this wall, about 70 feet. So if you triple it, that's the size of this dish. And this dish has one function. And the one function of this dish is to listen, to see whether or not there's any voices out there um, speaking to us from other parts of the universe so that we can make contact with other forms of extraterrestrial life. Thus far, there have been no um, intelligent um, noises heard or recorded. So in all these years, but it's, it's amazing that here we are and we are listening with the greatest care, with the greatest sophistication, listening to, is there anything that's coming through from out there? And ironically, what we have in this psalm here is a God who is screaming <laughs> at us by, by what he has revealed about himself in the natural world. Okay, the natural world is a, an object lesson for who God is and what he's about. And it is, and, and there is, um, and it is, it is available in all language, languages among all people. There is no place in the world where this message is not getting through. All people have observed the natural revelation of God. And yet that's something that we really have no interest in hearing. But if an extraterrestrial or some Martian or some being from another planet um, sends in a signal, you'll know about it quick. So, so let's start with a question. How many believe that God speaks to us? All right, good. That's what I figured. Most of us believe that. And of course, there are all kinds of things in Scripture that would encourage us. Obviously, God spoke to the people in the Old Testament. God spoke to Moses and David and Jeremiah and Isaiah and all of the, the prophets. God spoke to those people in, in a special way. And even in the New Testament, although when God speaks to us, we, it would not be proper to equate that with Scripture because all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, reproof, that whole, that whole thing. So what God spoke to those prophets was something unique and special, and it kind of is compiled together in the Bible. But God still is speaking to people today, and Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice, and they know what I'm saying. And so there is every good reason for us to, um, to expect that God would speak to us. Now, I would, I myself keep a kind of a caution on this because I have thought that I heard God speaking to me along the way and he wasn't. Anybody else? Has that happened to anybody else? Okay, thank you for being honest. <laughs> because this, I, all I want to say is this is not a perfect science and it's, it's not as though, you know, something's going to come down and, you know, a, the fiery finger is going to write on the wall. This is, this is, 
not always easy to discern, and it's always wise to be cautious. But the one thing that you can bank on would be, A, God speaking to you through nature. I've had lots of people tell me, you know, they, they would much rather go out into the woods hunting or something like that because they can really sense and feel God, and they don't feel like church is a place that really, you know, connects them with God all that much. And all right, I get it. Um, but... Um, Still, God is speaking through that, and then God is also speaking to us and wanting to communicate with us um, through his word. So, um, So there are essentially four ways that God communicates with us. Four that, that you can count on. One is through nature, one is through scripture. The third one David brings up, and that is through your conscience, through your inward uh, sense of your soul and, and your relationship with God. And then finally, um, God has spoken, you know, God who in times past spoke to us through the prophets has in these last days spoken to us by his son. So God speaks um, to us in four ways. And that's kind of the basis for what this great psalm is all about. So let's take a look at the first aspect of this whole truth this morning. And uh, it comes along in this, uh, in this first section and it is that God speaks to us in the skies. Let's see. Um, now we'll get there in a minute. Now this is, this is called in the, uh, in the wonderful world of apologetics. This is known as the teleological argument. Telos means the, the result or the, 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 um, the end product, the teleological argument. And it's also referred to as the argument from design. Okay, that as you look out into the universe... We see God's wisdom, his power, his glory are all being manifested by the things that God has created. So when we see something, usually, and it exhibits designs, if somebody drives up in, their, in a really fancy, all tricked out car today, right, something really special, and they come pulling into the parking lot, um, none of us would go out and say like, what an amazing vehicle. Would that thing just like ooze up out of the parking lot? Right, stupid, right? No, it didn't news up out of the parking lot. But if I were to say, man, whoever designed that thing really had an eye for it because that thing is really, really built and really looks great, right? That would be a little more on track because whenever we see something that um, gives all the appearance of design, we usually assume and conclude that where there is design, there must be a designer, Right? And so when we look out into the universe and we see the enormous amount of design, we see, we're able to see planetary movements with split-second precision everywhere, rotations, patterns that happen every day, every month, every year. They just continue to keep on going. What, what should the, what someone say to all this? Right? Would we just say, wow, that's really amazing that that just happened to happen? Right? It, it isn't a wise conclusion given the enormity of the manifestation of what's being revealed. Everything is being revealed with perfect harmony, and it would be, it would be completely wrong to say, well, that's a fortuitous occurrence of accidental circumstances. Right? That, that just, that's, that's lucky. Glad that happened that way. For instance, there are, there are so many things that are built into... Um, our universe, that scientists, and I'm not talking about only just Christian or, or God-fearing scientists, but scientists in general have come to refer to our universe as the Goldilocks universe. 
Now, you know the Goldilocks story, right? It wasn't too hot and it wasn't too cold. It was just right. The bed wasn't too big and it wasn't too small. It was just right. And everything for Goldilocks was just right. And this universe that we are living happens to be just right. And it is so narrowly fine-tuned in terms of things like the gravitational um, Planck's constant, the force of gravity, the strong and weak force in terms of atomic structures and, um, and, and quantum mechanics within the atomic uh, uh, molecule, within atoms themselves, uh, the force of magnetism, strong and weak forces. All of these things, I'll, I'll, I'm going to show you a video here, or Danny's going to show you a video here in a moment, by, um, by Dr. Um, Lane, Dr. Lane, William Lane Craig, and William Lane Craig is an apologist. If you're into apologetics, and apologetics, if you're not sure of what that means, it is not an apology for Christianity. It is a defense of Christianity. It is a defense as to the reasonable nature of believing um, the Word of God. And so uh, William Lane Craig is probably... He's probably the foremost apologist, although there are quite a number. Or no, there are four or five out that are really, really good. But William Lane Craig is, is outstanding. He's debated everybody everywhere. Um, and he's just an extraordinary man of God, an extraordinary speaker. But he's going to talk here about these, the fine-tuning concepts or, or, or concepts yeah, yeah, that, are, that are behind the things that we take for granted in nature every day. Go ahead, Danny. From galaxies and stars down to atoms and subatomic particles, the very structure of our universe is determined by these numbers. These are the fundamental constants and quantities of the universe. Scientists have come to the shocking realization that each of these numbers has been carefully dialed to an astonishingly precise value, a value that falls within an exceedingly narrow, life-permitting range. If any one of these numbers were altered by even a hair's breadth, no physical, interactive life of any kind could exist anywhere. There'd be no stars, no life, no planets, no chemistry. Consider gravity, for example. The force of gravity is determined by the gravitational constant. If this constant varied by just one in 10 to the 60th parts, none of us would exist. To understand how exceedingly narrow this life-permitting range is, imagine a dial divided into 10 to the 60th increments. To get a handle on how many tiny points on the dial this is, compare it to the number of cells in your body, or the number of seconds that have ticked by since time began. If the gravitational constant had been out of tune by just one of these infinitesimally small increments, the universe would either have expanded and thinned out so rapidly that no stars could form and life couldn't exist, or it would have collapsed back on itself with the same result. No stars, no planets, and no life. Or consider the expansion rate of the universe. This is driven by the cosmological constant. A change in its value by a mere one part in 10 to the 120th parts would cause the universe to expand too rapidly or too slowly. In either case, the universe would again be life prohibiting. Or another example of fine tuning. If the mass and energy of the early universe were not evenly distributed to an incomprehensible precision of one part in 10 to the 10 to the 123rd, the universe would be hostile to life of any kind. The fact is, our universe permits physical, interactive life only because these 
and many other numbers, have been independently and exquisitely balanced on a razor's edge. Wherever physicists look, they see examples of fine-tuning. The remarkable fact is that the values of these numbers seem to have been very finely adjusted to make possible the development of life. If anyone claims not to be surprised by the special features that the universe has, he's hiding his head in the sand. These special features are surprising and unlikely. What is the best explanation for this astounding phenomenon? There are three live options. The fine-tuning of the universe is due to either physical necessity, chance, or design. Which of these options is the most plausible? According to this alternative, the universe must be life-permitting. The precise values of these constants and quantities could not be otherwise. But is this plausible? Is a life-prohibiting universe impossible? Far from it. It's not only possible, it's far more likely than a life-permitting universe. The constants and quantities are not determined by the laws of nature. There's no reason or evidence suggests that fine-tuning is necessary. How about chance? Did we just get really, 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 really lucky? No. The probabilities involved are so ridiculously remote as to put the fine-tuning well beyond the reach of chance. So, in an effort to keep this option alive, some have gone beyond empirical science and opted for a more speculative approach, known as the multiverse. They imagine a universe generator that cranks out such a vast number of universes that, odds are, life-permitting universes will eventually pop out. However, there's no scientific evidence for the existence of this multiverse. It cannot be detected, observed, measured, or proved. And the universe generator itself would require an enormous amount of fine-tuning. Furthermore, small patches of order are far more probable than big ones. So the most probable observable universe would be a small one inhabited by a single, simple observer. But what we actually observe is the very thing that we should least expect, a vast, spectacularly complex, highly ordered universe inhabited by billions of other observers. So even if the multiverse existed, which is a moot point, it wouldn't do anything to explain the fine-tuning. Given the implausibility of physical necessity or chance, the best explanation for why the universe is fine-tuned for life may very well be it was designed that way. Common sense interpretation of the facts suggests that a superintellect monkeyed with physics and that there are no blind forces worth speaking about in nature. The numbers one calculates from the facts seem to me so overwhelming as to put this conclusion almost beyond question. There is for me powerful evidence that there is something going on behind it all. It seems as though somebody has fine-tuned nature's numbers to make the universe. The impression of design is overwhelming. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. So the amazing thing about all of that, amazing, right? 
I know we've, we've shown some of that before, but um, <clears throat> some folks are new and probably haven't seen it. But if you haven't seen that before, I mean, that's just astonishing, the, the reality that everything is that finely tuned. And if we're off, I mean, I don't know if you catch the significance or the, the magnitude or smallness, relative smallness of the numbers that he's talking about in, if, if there was a deviation. When you have something like 1 over 10 to the 10 to the 123, that's pretty tiny. That's way, way tiny. So anyway, <clears throat> God speaks to us in the skies. Um, the, the scientific world, many people in the scientific world, would uh, have a study natural laws, as if you know nature itself or all the wonder of creation could simply be explained by and relegated to the mechanical laws of physics which govern the physical universe. But whereas people will look into all this and fail to see God whatsoever. David looked up at the skies and he saw that the skies said something to him, that the skies were actually preaching a message, that they had something to say. The truth is that all of modern scientific evidence concerning the, existing, uh, the existence of the universe only points further and further toward the conclusion that the universe was and was since the Big Bang completely fine-tuned to accommodate for life. And there is really no other um, realistic, spec um, there's, there's really no other uh, realistic interpretation of it. The force of gravity, the speed of light, the strong and weak force, um, electromagnetism, all of these things um, basically are arguing for the fact that there is a designer who built this thing. And of course, David saw that right off the bat. Let's take a look at the first six verses of this psalm and uh, get into the text. Hello. All right, Danny, you punch that forward. Let's, there we go. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun. Whoops, I think we got to move that forward, right? Yeah, in them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving its chamber and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them. And there is nothing hidden from its heat. So the heavens, says David, are preaching a message to us. They are making a declaration. They are telling us about the glory of God. The heavens declare the glory. If you remember last week, we were in Psalm 8, and he says, O Lord, our Lord, how excellent or how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens, right? So the same observation is being made uh, in that psalm. So both by day and by night, God's creation is speaking, and this speech is heard by everybody in the world. We hear the voice of God in creation, and we see his wisdom and his power displayed. What, nature, what, what the natural revelation presents to us is the glory of God. It doesn't say anything to, to us yet about the goodness of God, doesn't say anything about the grace of God, doesn't say anything about the righteousness of God, doesn't say anything about the mercy of God, none of those things. It says the heavens declare the glory of God. And that certainly is true. The more we look into this, the more glorious and amazing this God of creation is for us to behold. 
to conclude that the universe evolved out of nothing and then arranged itself into the orderly manner that we see displayed everywhere that we look is just simply folly. And God, by the way, agrees with that statement. So verses three and four plainly declare that creation speaks a universal language to people everywhere. This point is not optional nor is it insignificant. As a matter of fact, it is that very point, the, our response to the, natural, to, the, to the revelation that is coming to us every day via nature uh, is what sets the condition for our either being, our connecting with God or our being under the wrath and judgment of God. I'm gonna take you to Romans chapter one. This is uh, another passage of scripture we, lo- we looked at a zillion times, but it is such a fundamental passage because in, in Romans chapter one, Paul is writing an indictment and he is saying, this is what's wrong with humanity. And, and so he goes through a whole bunch of, there's none good, there's none righteous, no one, no, none that does good. And he goes through a whole thing, the three chapters to finally get to the, to the end of his point, which is for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Boom, everybody disqualified. That's his ultimate conclusion regarding um, what he is about to start. But in Romans chapter one, he begins to build the argument and here's what he says. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Now he's speaking of the fact that like Here nature is shouting that there has to be a designer, but we have no willingness to hear uh, what nature is trying to tell us. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God, nor give thanks, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images, resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creepy things. So he's saying that instead of honoring God as God, instead of realizing through the natural revelation that whoever the creator is of all this, whoever the designer is of all this, he's no bird and he's no beast and he's no animal and none of those things could possibly ever represent him and anything that was ever created to be, let's say, an idolatrous type of an object of worship is just simply an insult. It couldn't be more of an insult to the God who made all of these things. So humanity through creation sees God's eternal power and wisdom. Nature preaches a thousand sermons a day. Figure like every day starts with darkness, then it becomes light, then it goes back to darkness. It's kind of a little metaphor for the the way life, life actually is. The year starts off in the dead of winter, and then it comes to spring, and life comes, and then summer, and all of that, and then it goes back to the end of the year, and it's back to death. All of these things, all of nature is speaking to us about the temporariness of the life that we live down here on planet Earth. So the very activities of nature under the hand of God are vivid ob- object lessons to the heart of lost sinful man, but alas, and unfortunately, we are not interested in seeing this. 
But the person who does not acknowledge or does not worship God, whoever they may be in this world, stands condemned before the ubiquitous, that's a nice big word, isn't it? The ever-present, all-present revelation of God in nature. And, and, and it's important that we hear what Paul says. He says, so they are without excuse. So there will be no person who will, no person ever will be able to stand before God and say, I don't know. That is just not possible. Every person knows that there is a God by nature. And then he says, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against the unrighteousness and ungodliness of men who suppress the truth of God for that which may be known of God has already been revealed to them and they just weren't interested in hearing. One second. So first, God speaks through the skies. Secondarily, as if that was not enough, God speaks through the scriptures. The heavens may declare God's glory, but the scriptures declare his grace and a whole lot more. This aspect of God's self-disclosure is more than just a general revelation. This is a personal revelation, and that's demonstrated in the fact that the pronoun is going to be cha it will change in this particular, or the, or the name that is being addressed will change in this passage of Scripture. In the beginning portion, it is, the heavens declare the glory of God. Now we're going to get into the law of the Lord Okay, the Lord is a different name than just God. God is El, he's the mighty one, he's the powerful one. That is one of the names of God. But when the, the, when the word Yahweh, as we, I think I explained last week, when the word Yahweh is being used, Yahweh is the covenant name of God. That is the name by which God identified himself when he met Moses at the burning bush and Moses said, who are you? I gotta know what your name is to go back and tell my people about you. He said, my name is YHVH or Yahweh. My name is I am that I am. It's the It's the past, present, and future form of the verb to be. So the, the, this, this portion of the verb and the, and the whole idea of special revelation or the revelation that's given in scripture um, is God disclosing himself on a personal level, a far more personal level than just that general sense of like, man, whoever made this must be something else. Okay, and so we get into this second part. God speaks to us through the scriptures. <clears throat> The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, Enduring forever. Oops. Probably got to swap that. Yeah. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold. What? More to be desired are they than gold. Wisdom, he says, is the principal thing. If you will lift up your voice for her as you would for silver, if you will search for her as for fine gold, you will find the knowledge of God, for out of the mouth of the Lord comes wisdom. Knowledge and understanding come from his mouth. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and in keeping of them, there is great reward. So we're going to break all these little, these individual statements down 
a little bit. In, in the first part, David, of course, praises the wonders of God in creation, but now he describes the wonders of God's revelation through his inspired word, his, his instructions, God's instructions, his laws, his statutes, his testimonies, his commandments, all of these things that God has given directly to us to give guidance for our life. So here in this lesson, we're going to, or in this section, we're going to learn six things about the scripture. So first of all, because it is perfect, because the law of the Lord is perfect, it will refresh your soul. Because the law of the Lord is perfect, it will refresh your soul. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. There is no error in the Bible, either in historical fact or in spiritual truth. Millions of people have set out to find one, okay? I was watching again the testimony of uh, Lee Strobel. Lee Strobel was an attorney who's also a, a reporter for the, for the Chicago Tribune. He got married, when, when he got married, he was a total atheist and happy to be so. Uh, his wife was an unbeliever. And then she met somebody at work, and the person that she met at work was, was a believer, and they started to talk, and so the, this person asked her to accompany her to go to church sometime, and she went to church and went a few more times, and then she went back to Lee with the awful news, I've become a Christian. When, if you hear his testimony, it, it's, so, it's amazing the way he phrases it, because he says, she couldn't have said any, any worse things. She, you know, I come back and said she was a murderer. You know, that, that would have been less, um, re, he would have been less resistant to that than becoming a Christian because he had no faith, he had no belief whatsoever in God and didn't want to have any. He did he wanted to have nothing to do. So he set about to prove that all of this stuff was a bunch of baloney. And guess what? He became a Christian. <laughs> and so, this has happened to so many people. C.S. Lewis is the exact same thing. He was an atheist when he went to Oxford uh, College when he began his career, and then he uh, met other people, and by the time he really dug in and studied, he came out of the whole thing and saying, there's no, there's no other explanation for anything. There is certainly a God. And of course, he became one of the most prolific, uh, uh, an apologist for sure, and, uh, and one of the most prolific writers, Christian writers of the 20th century. Francis Schaeffer, the same story. And it has happened over and over and over again because what we'd like to do is prove all of this to be a bunch of baloney. And then we will all, we could, uh, you know, we'll all be off the hook. But there is no error in the Bible. There is no historical error. There is no spiritual error. God's law is perfect. It's a perfect, flawless, unadulterated reflection of our awesome God. What he is, is built into it. The word convert means to turn back to something, to restore, to refresh, to revive. The scripture, what the scripture will do for you is it will turn you back to God. In other words, if you are far from God, and you begin to look honestly and sincerely at the word of God and begin to read it, and you, it might be helpful if you get a little bit of direction and all of that, because if you open up, you know, do one of those things, it's not necessarily the wisest way to find your way around scripture. You've probably heard that uh, the, 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 the guy who told his pastor that he was looking for a word for, uh, from the Lord, and so he decided to just close his eyes, open up his Bible, and he put his finger down, and he looked down and said, Judas went and hanged himself. 
wasn't the message that he wanted. No, 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 no. So he starts flipping through pages again, and he points out another one, and it says, go thou and do likewise. <laughs> okay, so I think mistakes can be made in doing things like that. <clears throat> but essentially, if you will honestly get into the Word of God and study it, you will find out, no, there are not errors in this thing. As a matter of fact, it's kind of like what you see in the heavens. Originally, you have no comprehension of what's up there and how incredible it all is, and what precision is behind all of that. So it just looks like a big picture of stars and sun and moon and all of that stuff, right? But it, we, had, we would not have any real understanding of the incredible synchronicity to everything that's out there. The Bible is like that too. At first you just get into it, so you start reading it. And, and, uh, but as the more you dig in, you will find that all the pieces fit together. And it's amazing that, it, like, from the very get-go, from as I said last week, you know, Genesis chapter 3, right after the fall, God comes right in and says, well, um, he's going he's gonna to bruise your heel, but you're going to crush his head. And he makes a promise right off the bat that there's going to be a response to all of this, and this one that has come in to corrupt humanity will be defeated. So anyway, the scripture, the word convert means to turn back to something, so the scriptures will turn you back to God. Right? What we were reading this morning, the scriptures will turn your heart back to God. They will turn you to God, to God, if you are not a believer and you begin to look honestly into it. And, and like I said, I would, I would advise anybody to get a little guidance along that road. But still, the more, you, the, the more you actually study the Bible, the more you will become convinced that it is true. That is really, uh, I am 100% certain of that. The people who tell me that they don't believe in the Bible have probably never read a bit of it. Or maybe read a couple of verses or maybe a psalm or something like that. But they have, because the only way you could say something like that is that you just have no idea what's going on in there. But the more you do get in and the more you know it, the scriptures will turn you back to God. It will do it the first time in salvation and uh, since we are sheep and tend to wander by nature and tend to wander off, and it'll, it'll restore you, it'll bring you back the umpteenth time that you come back to it. It will realign you again and again. The Bible is like an unending well that refreshes and realigns our life with God's purposes. So you can go to a doctor for the needs of your body, or you can go to college for the needs of your mind, but only the Scripture will minister to the needs of your soul. Your soul is that mo innermost sense of who you are. That's where the scripture, that's where the scripture will apply. You remember in, in Hebrews, it says the word of God is alive and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing down to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit, penetrating down to the very thoughts and intents of the heart, getting right to the, to the reality of who you are and what you're about. The word of God will discover you and the word of God will reveal who you really are. So <clears throat> you can only go to scripture for the needs of your soul and it's through the word of God that God accomplishes all of his work. It is through the word that we become children of the most high God. First Peter 1.23 says, you have been born again not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. In John 17, 17, Jesus says that, he, said, he, he prays to the Father and he says, sanctify them, meaning set them apart by your truth. Your word is truth. 
So it is through that that God calls us out of the lost and broken and fallen world and calls us into the ecclesia that Joel was talking about this morning, this called out assembly of people who are abandoning this lost world. Okay, because this is nothing but a train wreck down here. So who have just simply abandoned any, any positive um, hope that somehow or another good things are going to be forthcoming in this world. That just, it, we, we happen to live in the best of it, and it still does not deliver on its promise. It is a, it is a, fall, fall, it is a flawed and, and failed promise to, to live in, in the world. But um, the word of God will, it brings us into the reality of God's, of God's presence. So, because, um, but because it is perfect, it will refresh your soul. Secondarily, because it is a sure testimony, it will challenge your mind. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Sure, the word sure here means definite. It is decided. It is certain. The testimony of the Lord is definite, decided, and, and certain. It is a testimony because it bears witness to God's will and to man's duty. Its effect is to make the simple person wise. Now, when, when the scripture uses that term simple, it's not talking of a simpleton or, you know, it's try, not trying to be demeaning in the sense of to insult someone's intelligence. Basically, the idea of a simple person means a naive person, a person who is not well acquainted with the realities and so they are likely just to stumble off like a child might, not recognizing danger. Okay, so simple means an open-minded, teachable person who can be instructed in the ways of the Lord. These days we tend to emphasize a different aspect of, of, of um, people's attributes. We talk about people who are smart. Oh, he's really smart. You know, it could be somebody on the job, could be somebody in politics, somebody in the media, very smart, okay? But I think smart is like way overrated because you can be the smart, you, you can have an IQ of 175 and be nothing but a fool, right? And if, and if you have not yet connected with the one who created you, how can there be any sense in your life yet, right? There isn't any, there's no reality because thus far you've not even touched first base. You're not even up to home plate. Okay, so the starting point is to, is to connect with God um, and the testimony of the Lord, according to uh, this passage here, is sure making wise the simple. The effect is to make wise the simple. So scripture says that knowledge will puff you up, but love will build you up. So um, <clears throat> that whole idea of, be, of being made wise anyway, it's smart, this is so much better than smart. Okay, wise is infinitely better than smart. My son, if you will lift up your voice for understanding, if you will cry out for wisdom, if you will search for it as for silver and lift up your voice and, and search for it as, as you would gold, then you will understand the fear of the Lord. For the mouth of the, for wisdom comes from the mouth of the Lord. Uh, so the, the whole idea, I mean, Proverbs is just full of that same admonition, that the thing that you really want to get a handle on is wisdom. Okay, because wisdom will tell you how to live. Wisdom will tell you what kinds of decisions to make. Wisdom will advise you in terms of when there's times of danger or things that, um, that are not yet perhaps um, obser observable yet. Wisdom will, will make you into a person who can discern. In other words, that per the person who can discern doesn't have to run into the wall 
to know that it's going to be a problem. The discerning person can see it a long way off. And so it is, because it is a sure testimony, it will challenge your mind. Number three, because it contains right precepts, it will delight the heart. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. Precepts are commands, statutes, directives. In a, in, in a phrase, they are rules. These precepts that God has brought into his, or revealed in his word, they are rules for daily living. Some rules are wrong. Some rules are unfair. Some rules show partiality. But God's rules are right. The precepts of the Lord are right because they are exact representation of his own perfect nature and his own perfect will. There are no requirements in the Bible that are arbitrary, imposed upon man apart from the consideration of his good. Meaning, everything that God asks you and I to do is good for me good for us. I, I know of no command or no thing that God wants me to do that he does to make his thing better. Because his thing can't get better. There's no improving. He is perfect, the law of the Lord. And so everything that he's given is trying to draw us into his perfection, into, into this wonderful condition in which he exists. And so his rules, um, the, the, the rules of the Lord are right, Rejoicing, the precepts of the Lord are right. <clears throat> Everything that the Lord requires of us is an expression of his own holiness and is in harmony with the structure of the universe in which we live. Think of it this way. What is the one thing that Jesus says, this is essential, this has got to be happening, this, it is through this that everybody will know that you are for real my follower? Love. Now, how bad is it? Like it, it just always amazes me that people are not flocking to Jesus because all he's, all he's requiring, that he says on the night that he's to be betrayed, um, I have a new commandment to give unto you. It is that you love one another like I have loved you. If you, ha if you have love one for another, all men will know that you are my disciples if you really love each other. Now, that doesn't seem to be an oppressive command. You know, it's not like I got to climb the Himalayas or I got to do send 40 days in the sweat lodge or some, some really crazy, arduous thing to somehow make God happy. No, I just have to do the thing that is best for me. That's the amazing part of, uh, of, of God's requirements. They are, all, they are all for our well-being and for our, um, and for our profit. If you will let the process happen, you will find that the results of living in the Lord's rules for living will bring delight to your heart because it will be, bring prosperity, peace, and success to your life. Think about God's word to Joshua, Joshua chapter 1. And Joshua's got this monster challenge ahead of him. He's just taken people. They've been 40 years in the wilderness. They have been 250 years as slaves. Now, all of a sudden, he's got to take them and fashion them into a nation of people and into an army because they got people to conquer and work to do, right? So he's got this gigantic job ahead of him, and God gives him one instruction. He says, Joshua, this book of the law shall not depart out of your mouth, but you shall meditate in it day and night, for in this way you will prosper, and in this way you will have good success. One thing, 
It's, it's kind of like what Psalm 1 said when we studied Psalm 1. You know, his, his delight is in the law of the Lord. In his law, he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree planted by rivers of, rivers of water that brings forth his fruit in season. His leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he does shall prosper. Who? The guy who meditates in the word of God. So everything that is in the scripture, everything that is in the word, is there for our well-being. So it will bring prosperity and blessing to our life. <clears throat> Number four, because its commandments are pure, it will clarify your vision. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. If you happen to have a New Living Ten, uh, Translation, it translates this as, the commandment of the Lord is pure, giving insight to life. The Bible throws light on your life. It's amazing how much light the scripture will throw on your path. It throws light on everything. It throws light on your job. It throws light on your marriage. It throws light on your employment. It throws light on your family. It throws, it throws light in every different area. It gives light. It gives understanding. So on your on dating, marriage, parenting, business practices, all of it, will, you can find encouragement and, and, and exhortation in Scripture. The Bible gives insight for life. It will clarify your vision. Five, because the fear of the Lord is clean, it will stabilize your future. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. Now, in this, in this case, it's interesting that he's using this term, the fear of the Lord, but the fear of the Lord uh, in this particular reference is a synonym um, that refers to the word of God. It's not usually used in that way, but um, it, it is describing the effect that knowing and obeying the word of God has on our lives. In other words, if you really re read the scripture, it'll put the fear of God in you. Not to be afraid of God, not to cower before God, but this respect for God, to know who this being is that has first of all created all of us, all, all that we know, and then has invited us into his fellowship, into his family. So it will, the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. And then finally, <clears throat> because God's rules are right and they are right-intentioned, it will benefit your whole life. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. One of, the, one of the great truths I've found about the Bible is that it warns me, and I need that, right? The world will encourage you, oh, whatever feels good. You know, if it feels good, yeah, whatever makes you happy, right? That's gonna be the world's counsel. But oftentimes the world is not taking into consideration what repercussions will be coming when you go down some road that they're saying, oh, that's fine, it's good, it's all good, right? And then all of a sudden the person takes that, makes that choice or takes that road and it ends up as a disaster. So the Bible warns us, by them your servant is warned and in keeping of them there is great reward. That's kind of like, like the rewards for all of this. God, God rewards us here and now to some degree, but the great rewards are coming when we, when we will finally be gathered together with the Lord Jesus. Then, um, whatever rewards you have, anything that you have down here is rapidly perishing and wasting away. Everything that we have up there will be ours forever. <laughs>